Hi, I'm Diora, and this is Broccoli Book Club. This episode is the author interview. I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Rachel Clark, the author of this month's book, Breathtaking. Dr. Rachel is an NHS palliative care doctor and writer who is based in Oxfordshire. She's the author of three Sunday Times bestselling non-fiction books. She began her medical degree at the age of 29, qualifying as a doctor in 2009. Before going to medical school, Dr. Rachel Clark was a broadcast journalist. She produced and directed current affairs documentaries, primarily for Channel 4, focusing on subjects such as the Iraq War and the Civil War in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Breathtaking, published in January 2021, exposes what life was really like working on NHS COVID-19 wards during the beginning of the pandemic. I was really keen to speak to Rachel, mainly because I was amazed that she had the time to not only work on the front line of the NHS, but to also collate all of her experiences in this moving memoir. To begin with, I was just writing for myself in the early days in sort of February, March last year, before the first lockdown, it was incredibly scary as a doctor because we were all looking at what was happening first in China and then in Northern Italy. And we could just see this wave of misery coming closer and closer to us. And long before the government lockdown, there were hospitals literally running out of oxygen, literally being full and transporting sick patients to other hospitals. When I'm stressed, I immediately stop sleeping. So I used to kind of pace around the kitchen late at night, trying not to wake up my husband. And I would bash away on my keyboard. And it wasn't even then an attempt to document anything. It was just a bit of therapeutic spewing. And then gradually... I felt it was important to try and document what it was like from the inside, even if it was only for myself. I didn't think it was going to be a book at that stage because there were so many people talking about patients and about NHS staff, not necessarily from a position of really living through this inside hospitals. And even if what I was experiencing was very personal and not objective, it was very subjective. I thought it was important still to document it. Mm. So did you feel like in writing about it, it was also processing something so heavy and something that's so hard to get your head around in real time? Exactly that. And I think a lot of us had this sort of slightly sickening, almost vertiginous feeling last year when those death tolls got higher and higher, where you'd hear these numbers being sort of announced on television and you'd feel sick because it was impossible to comprehend another 500 people have died, another thousand people have died every single day. And I needed something to try and hang on to, to keep me sane. And for me, I always write, I reflect on the world, I process my experiences through my pen. And it was just a way of speaking out the truth that I was 
experiencing. I wanted to use the word there, enduring, because it just felt like endurance. And it was almost necessary psychologically to write about it. I don't think now I could do it. I almost in some ways don't want to go back there because it still feels so traumatic. And I don't think I could possibly now write what I wrote then because it was so raw and and quite brutal. I think the writing reflected the experience. Wow, that's really powerful. And if you don't mind me asking, you know, is it something that you could even read back? I had no idea if anybody would even want to read the book because what we all collectively experienced and what we're still living through, I think, has been an unprecedented in most of our lifetimes collective experience of loss, grief, trauma, fear. Every single person in the UK has lost something or other due to the pandemic. For me, part of the therapy of writing the book was trying to find and distill those moments of goodness and light in the trauma, in the darkness. So hopefully that comes through in the book. Mm. And between the period of you beginning to write it and it being published, at what point did you know that it was definitely going ahead? Interestingly, I didn't actually know that I was really writing a book, a book that was going to be published until after that day, which is etched in my memory in May, when the country discovered to our horror that Dominic Cummings, one of the people who had promoted that the rules of lockdown had been found to have broken all of those rules himself. And I was so apoplectic with rage when this story was broken and when the Prime Minister stood up and defended his right-hand man, even though clearly one rule applied to the public and another to powerful people in government. I think particularly because all through that period, I had been speaking to distraught and desperate and grieving family members who could not be there with their loved one who was dying of COVID in hospital. And so that was the moment when I suddenly was desperate to make this a book that would be published and talked to my publishers and they were very enthusiastic. And from that moment on, I was in a sort of mad frenzy of writing because suddenly I burned to tell the story that I'd just lived through. And so the book is called Breathtaking Inside the NHS in a Time of the Pandemic. Do you feel that you represented all the various experiences of NHS staff in this time of crisis? Definitely not. And I was really at pains to stress in the beginning of the book that this was my subjective experience. And although I interviewed colleagues and patients and family members, I was very conscious of the fact that I was still the author, I was the narrator. So their experiences were being mediated through my own. And in no sense can I pretend it's exhaustive or objective or representative of NHS experiences at large. But I hoped that at least capturing a flavour, even if it was only my subjective take, it would convey something, even if that was only my own reality. For sure. And so we follow someone like Ken Wood throughout pretty much the whole book. So out of the hundreds of people that you must have treated, how did you decide on whose stories that you wanted to tell? I was very, very concerned about trying to 
represent and give voice to individuals whose voices are not necessarily typically heard. So for example, healthcare assistants working in a hospital, and yet they provide this absolutely extraordinary vital care. They're the glue of the NHS. Likewise, we heard a lot from, for instance, patients with COVID who had survived intensive care, and Ken Wood, who you mentioned, is one of those. But last year, we were hearing very little from, for example, cancer patients whose cancer treatment was suspended because of COVID. And I really wanted to try and bring in some of those voices that were not being heard very often. Whose story struck you the most, do you think? There's one moment in particular which almost defines the pandemic for me. And this was a moment when... A patient I had been caring for was dying of COVID. She actually had cancer as well, and both conditions were overwhelming her. And there was a point at which she was so distressed, she was going to be losing her children, she was quite young, that there really weren't any drugs that could help her distress. It wasn't a matter of morphine or physical pain. This was a kind of awful anguish of not wanting to die. And one of the healthcare assistants that I work with, who knew theoretically that she herself could catch COVID and die from close contact with this patient, nevertheless just reached over and took her in her arms like a mother would comfort a child. And she held her at risk to herself. She closely held somebody who was dying from COVID. And it was the absolute vital medicine. It was the one thing this poor young woman needed And she stopped being distressed and she relaxed and her breathing changed as she was being held by a carer who conveyed just love and tenderness and made her feel safe. Wow, that's so moving. I just have nothing to add to that. Yeah. You seemed very conflicted about Clap for the NHS in the book. Nearly two years on, do you think that was a good initiative? What do you think of the fact that the government which supported this initiative is responsible you know for 10 years of austerity and underfunding of the NHS? Well um, (laughs) I think that to begin with the NHS clap was an absolutely beautiful wonderful and much needed thing. I literally fell to my knees with emotion when I happened to get out of my car back home at eight o'clock just as the first NHS clap began. I was so moved and overwhelmed by that gorgeous, sincere, spontaneous expression of gratitude to all the key workers who were doing their jobs. So I think the clap as a sincere expression of precisely that, you know, people who were grateful for what we were all doing was absolutely magnificent. It brought the public together, It helped NHS and other staff feel as though what we were doing mattered and was important. We could keep going at times when, you know, it was tough at work. But the way in which it cynically became exploited by the government, the same politicians, you know, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, all of whom would stand week after week applauding the same NHS nurses and porters and paramedics whose pay rises they had routinely voted against, if you look at their voting records over and over again, who had deliberately allowed the NHS to be 
terribly underfunded for 10 years of austerity budgets. So we went into the pandemic with one of the lowest numbers of doctor per head of any country in Europe and one of the lowest numbers of beds per head of any country in Europe. I just hated that because they clearly were using the clap to curry favour with the public while overseeing a managed decline of the same NHS they purported to value. And there's nothing worse than hypocrisy in a politician. Sincerity really matters and the public knows when people are being sincere and so do NHS staff. So I think it's fair to say I found the clap challenging by the end. I think most of us wanted it to end just because of the way it had been used. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. And for those of us who don't know how the NHS works, and that also includes me, I'm curious to know, how much did you have to follow the government guidelines? And did you feel like the NHS was taking the pandemic a lot more seriously than the government, considering initiatives like Eat Out to Help Out were being encouraged in the earlier stages of the pandemic? Yes, completely. So it's very noticeable that the Prime Minister no longer ever refers to following the science because he so clearly stopped following the science a long time ago. But last year, his mantra always was, we are following the science and we will do the right thing at the right time, according to the science. And of course, a lot of doctors are scientists as well. And I think a lot of us in the NHS felt very uneasy about that. For instance, before we locked down in March last year, we had hospitals that were completely overwhelmed, their intensive cares overflowing with COVID patients. There were so many hospitals worried about running out of oxygen. You'd never imagine saying that sentence pre-2020 in a rich, developed country. So we were, from the beginning, desperate for the government to take it more seriously. All of the government's scientific advisors, the SAGE committee, could have been saying last autumn, lockdown, you need to lock down, cases are exponential, the deaths are going to be exponential. But we had a government who ignored that because they wanted to give the public the sort of 
nice, cosy treat of being able to see each other at Christmas, that was just shattering as a member of the NHS. And I think everybody makes mistakes. I wouldn't want to be a prime minister in a pandemic. But if you're a doctor and you make a mistake, the first thing you do is hold your hand up and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to do things differently. But unfortunately, I would argue we've had the opposite experience where over and over again, we've locked down too late. We haven't introduced measures to protect people. And as a result, we have a death toll now of over 150,000 people. And it just didn't have to be like that. I saw loads of pictures of doctors and nurses wearing masks for hours and them leaving lines in their faces and pictures of swollen feet after days of not really having a second to sit down. And from that, I'm sure that there has been a physical and mental toll on NHS staff. How do you think the physical reality of the pandemic has affected you? Yeah, I think there isn't a single member of frontline staff in the NHS who hasn't been deeply traumatised by the last 19 months. And I include myself in that. I was okay until early January, but I think only with hindsight, because I was in this frenzied state of either working or writing or feverishly trying to get the messages that seem to be important for public health out there. And all of a sudden in January, I was driving to work one day and I knew what I was going to be facing, that the deaths were just out of control in January this year. And I was trying to get to work and it was almost as though my body mutinied and I literally started having a panic attack that was so severe that I had to pull over by the side of the road. I couldn't drive the car and I've never experienced panic attacks in my life before I had chest pain, I couldn't breathe, I was clutching my throat, I felt like I was dying. And even though my brain knew this was a panic attack, I couldn't stop it happening. And I sort of sat by the side of the road, crying and trembling and just thinking I physically could not get into work. And I did eventually manage to, but after that, I realised I just needed help. And luckily, there has been investment in supporting staff and I was able to talk to someone and talk that through and I'm now happily back at work and I've got through it but I felt a little bit like I was going mad then and you know I'm a a mum in her 40s never experienced panic attacks and it was horrific and I know many 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 people who now are suffering from PTSD or who have been through something similar people are traumatized they're leaving lots of people because they just they can't do it anymore and as a doctor what are the biggest misconceptions you've heard about COVID and the NHS since the pandemic began there's two above all one is a lot of people are afraid that somehow the NHS became only a COVID service. We only cared about patients with COVID. What about everybody else? And that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. We've always been desperate to just get back to our normal, in inverted commas, activity caring for all the other patients, you know, children, cancer, road traffic accidents. We're desperate to be doing our normal jobs But every COVID patient in hospital is another patient who can't get in because we don't have enough beds, we don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough doctors. 
the reason we want COVID to be as low as possible is so that we've got as much capacity as possible to treat everyone else. And then the second and I think biggest misconception by far and away is the fear as many people have that COVID vaccines are harmful and potentially going to cause them or maybe their children very, very serious harm. I would never pretend that a vaccine is entirely risk-free. There are risks to every medicine vaccines included. But the side effects of COVID just mean the vaccine effects pale into insignificance. I think if I could say one single thing, it would be, please believe us when we say the vaccines are overwhelmingly safe and really effective. The only thing that's worse from someone dying from COVID is someone who didn't need to die if only they had had a vaccine. Yeah. And I'm just really curious, where do you think the trust between the NHS and the government sits today after everything that has happened? Do you think it's got better over time? It has never been worse. And I've been either a doctor or medical student now for nearly 20 years. And we had to endure last year a government who stood up and told the public there were no problems with PPE when we knew in our hospitals, in the hospice where I was working, we had no PPE. We had people dying through lack of proper PPE. And to know that you were being sent out to care for patients without adequate masks, without adequate gowns, it felt a bit like you were those sort of young soldiers in the First World War going over the top, sent there by the big fat generals who smoked their cigars and, you know, put their knees up behind the trenches. It was absolutely devastating to know that the government was fully aware of the risks, but kept telling the public there were no problems with PPE. And then later there were no problems with testing when we couldn't get tests for patients. And then Perhaps worst of all, in December, when people started getting vaccinated, there was a huge delay for frontline healthcare workers getting the vaccines they needed to protect themselves. So a month after people were being vaccinated, I still hadn't had a COVID vaccine and I was seeing COVID patients every day. And I just think we all sort of said to ourselves, this is it. This is what they think of us. They literally don't care if we die. And I don't think any member of the NHS who has lived through the last year and a half will ever trust this government on the NHS again. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. 
It will never let you down. Thanks to Rachel for speaking to me in this episode. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Shedding the Shackles by Lynn Stein. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenotes at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jaja Mohammed, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson, and mixed by Rob Fincham. This is a Broccoli Production.